Our great God, as we come to the time in our worship, Lord, where your word is preached, Lord, we pray that you would help us to cast the cares of this world aside, Lord, that we would open our ears to your word. Lord, we are thankful for the ways that you have gifted our pastor, and we're thankful for his diligent study. Lord, we pray that you would help him to boldly proclaim your word today. Lord, we pray that you would use your word, God, to edify your saints and to draw the lost among us to yourself, and that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would bless it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel. We're here in chapter 3, kind of right in the middle of of chapter 3. We're at a a transitional point in the narrative, in the text. We are concluding the the first major section in the Gospel of Mark that led up through verse 6 of of chapter 3. But we begin a new section here. And at first read, and I will confess in, in my first probably second and even third reading or more be more of this text this week. The question came to my mind, how do I preach this? You know, sometimes sermons are more difficult to, to write than others. Sometimes it's difficult because there are, you know, exegetical or interpretive difficulties where it's hard to understand what is the apostle saying or what is Mark saying here or what is Jesus saying here, what does he mean? Well, that's not really one of these texts. We're going to see as, you, as we read here in a moment, Verses 7 through 12, it's pretty straightforward what's happening. It's a narration of, of events in, our, in the ministry of our Savior. So that's not what makes it difficult. What makes it difficult is, what's the point of it? What's the significance of this? And, and we, we start with the proposition that there's not one extra word in Scripture. There's not one unprofitable word. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's all profitable for us. So we have to discipline ourselves sometimes to ask questions like, why is this here? Why are we we being told these particular things? What's going on in the text? And in this case, I'm going to kind of take you through my thought process, and you have to ask a more specific question regarding what what we know. We start with what we know. Mark began his gospel, going back to chapter 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we've established, and we've seen this over and over and over again, that Mark is zealous for us to come away with the conviction from his gospel that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. Well, that helps us. Well, now we can approach this text and say, well, what does this inform us in particular about Jesus being the Son of God? What's here, as we find out about people coming from different areas, and there's this, this, this story of the crowd, and Jesus gets in a boat, and there's the healing of an of a evil spirit. What does all this have to teach us? What does this inform us about Jesus being the Son of God? I mean, we, we've seen Jesus more uh, up to this point. We've seen him heal all kinds of diseases, including last week a paralytic. or I'm sorry, a few weeks ago a paralytic. Last week a man with a withered hand. We saw him heal a leper, which all the Jews agreed, only God can do that. We've seen him cast out demons. We've we've seen him 
call men to himself to leave their lawful, ordinary vocations and follow him as eyewitnesses and as ministers for him. We've seen him declare his authority to forgive sins, which all agreed, only God can do that. We've seen him overcome all kinds of opposition. In fact, in the last two weeks, we've seen specifically opposition that comes because Jesus had the audacity to do good on the Sabbath rather than harm. And the leaders of Israel were angry with him. In fact, last week's sermon, we closed. Verse 6 says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Well, now in today's text, we're going to see him overcome a large, diverse, unruly crowd, and he ends up sparing himself and his disciples from potentially very significant harm. And he's drawing large crowds to himself from all over, and he's rebuking unclean spirits. And again, the question is, what does this have to do with him being the Son of God? And I think this is the answer. Here's the, the, the point, I think, of the text, and certainly the point of the sermon. In Jesus of Nazareth, we observe the perfect wisdom, the electing grace, and the sovereign power of the Godhead. So in this, in this passage, I'm, I'm encourage you, as I read the text in a minute, hear it through that lens. Or Do you hear it through a lens? That doesn't sound right. Hear it through that grid. Hear it through that filter of Jesus being the Son of the living God. And hear testimony about his wisdom, about the perfection of his wisdom. Hear about his electing grace. Hear about his sovereign authority over all things, that his purposes will not be thwarted, not by an unruly mass of people, not even by demonic powers. Let's read together Mark chapter 3. I'm going to back up to verse 6 and read through verse 12. But notice, divine wisdom, the electing grace, and the sovereign authority, the sovereign victory. This is the word of God. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The title of today's sermon is The Son of God and a Crushing Crowd. Son of God and a Crushing Crowd. Notice, first of all, we see a demonstration of the perfect wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He demonstrates his perfect divine wisdom in the face of two very serious and simultaneous threats. What are those two threats? Well, verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees go out and they conspire together with the Herodians. 
Now, the Herodians, of course, were those who were followers, political followers of Herod, the Tetrarch. And so this is an unholy alliance. I mean, this is, this is bigger than two mafia families conspiring together, two enemies conspiring together with one new common enemy. And how did Jesus respond to this? But the other threat is we see a crushing crowd. Twice, Mark describes this crowd as a great crowd, and then a third time, he just uses the word for great and, and means crowd by it. It's a, our English word, plethora, comes from the Greek word that's used here. It's just, it's a bunch. It's a whole lot. And this crowd is, is, is sort of a, a negative symbiotic relationship. What I mean by that is, here's the threat, political threat, from the Herodians and the Pharisees teaming together, now you have this big, monstrous crowd coming from all over, and they're pressing upon him, threatening to crush him physically. And those are not two separate and isolated things. One can cause harm in the other, because the, more, the, the bigger the crowd gets, the greater his popularity, the greater the threat the Herodians and the Pharisees' conspiracy becomes, the greater their desire to destroy him. So we see in verse 6, For example, this conspiracy with the Herodians and the Pharisees. Then in verse 7, he withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd follows. And then down in verse 9, we're told that the disciples had to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. I mean, literally, physically, to take him away from the pressure, the the uh, the crushing nature of that crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, that's the plethora, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So it was a physical threat here. And notice the description of the crowd. And, and we can minimize this at this point, because we've all been in various crowds, whether it's in a religious service or a sporting event or some other situation where there's a big crowd. And, and ordinarily, it might be a little inconvenient, but ordinarily a crowd's not a danger but we would do a disservice to the text, a disservice to the historical event, if we didn't take very seriously the physical threat that was here. I mean, imagine the desperation. People had heard about his healing power. And people who are sick, people who are hurting, will do desperate things. And the text tells us they were pressing in, trying to touch him. Imagine thousands of people trying to get to and touch one person. And historically, crowds have been dangerous on on two occasions, or two kind of circumstances. One is when the crowd is suddenly afraid of something, and people are running away from an object of threat. Another is when they're running toward something. And here the something is a someone. They're coming to Jesus. I didn't realize until this week, I discovered that Wikipedia, shouldn't have surprised me, Wikipedia has an entire page called Fatal Crowd Crushes that catalogs all the way up until the 2020s, from the ancient world up until now, a catalog of the fatalities that happen in a crowd, along with the serious injuries and bodily injuries. In fact, Josephus, the ancient historian, Jewish historian Josephus, reports that somewhere in the reign of Ventidius Cumanus, who was procurator of Judea between AD 48 and 52, 
that there was an incident at Passover. And there was an altercation between the Jews and a soldier. And the Roman army responded in force. And the pilgrims there for Passover panicked. And Josephus reports that 10,000 Jews died. Now, the number's probably exaggerated. But it's a big number. And so, let's don't just dismiss this physical threat. It's a serious threat. It's a real threat. And then on top of that, you have this conspiracy with the Herodians. And how does Jesus respond to all of this? He's the Son of God in all of his power. How does he respond? He withdraws. He withdraws. Does that, does that strike you as strange? Does that surprise you that that's his response? That he withdraws. That he avoids What do we learn? We learn here that we are not greater than our master. There are times when we ought to back away from a fight. There are times when we avoid persecution. There are times when we make the decision, this is not the time for that controversy. And yes, sometimes even a gospel fight must be delayed, or ought to be delayed. There are times, and Jesus teaches us by his example here, that it's necessary to flee from unnecessary persecution and unnecessary difficulty. Now, was Jesus responding in fear? Was he afraid of the crowds? Was he afraid of the Herodians? Well, no. That wasn't his his motive at all. But by by his example, he teaches his disciples and he teaches us that sometimes we need to retreat. In fact, by Jesus' words, not only his example, by his words, he taught his disciples this. When you were persecuted in one town, what did he tell them to do? Flee to the next. And of course, the apostles recognized this. After Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, you follow carefully through Paul's missionary journeys, for example. There were many times when Paul would specifically target Roman cities because Paul had Roman citizenship and he had legal protections there. And he would go and he would preach in the synagogue. And in places like Thessalonica, for example, he was run out of town. The persecution became so hot that he left. He didn't abandon it and forsake it for good, but he recognized wisdom here requires me to leave for the moment to live to fight another day. The Apostle Paul recognized this reality. Listen to Alexander McLaren. He said, Jesus withdrew from the danger which was preparing, not from selfish desire to preserve life, but because his hour was not yet come. Discretion is sometimes the better part of valor. To avoid peril is right. To fly from duty is not right. There are times when Luther's, here I stand, I can do no, nothing else, God help me, amen, must be our motto. And there are times when the persecuted in one city are bound, commanded to flee to another. We shall best learn to distinguish between these times by keeping close to Jesus. But his action teaches us a lesson that the best Christian work is hindered rather than helped by the popularity which dazzles many and is often mistaken for success. Christ's motive for seeking to check rather than to stimulate such impure impure admiration 
was that it would certainly increase the ruler's antagonism and might even excite the attention of the Roman authorities who had to keep a very sharp outlook for agitations among their turbulent subjects. Therefore, Christ first took to the boat and then withdrew into the hills above the lake. It's an insightful observation. What, what, what Pastor McLaren is saying here is that I think not only did the crowd pose a serious physical threat, but their unbridled, in fact, their unrighteous zeal for Christ. They were there just for what they could get from him. That enthusiasm would certainly draw even more unwanted and, more importantly, untimely attention to the ministry of Jesus. Now, saints, I think there's an important lesson for us here. There's a very important lesson for us here. And again, I'm, I'm no prophet, I'm no son of a prophet. But I don't think I have to be to discern our times. Many of you, as we face an increasingly dark culture, many of you are already facing increased pressure in your workplaces to conform to certain unbiblical dogma and ideologies. In the marketplace, ordinary business decisions are more and more being affected by whether you ascribe to some sort of ungodly cultural dogma. Sometimes even in your neighborhoods, in your community involvement, certainly in the sphere of civil government, and for some, even in extended families. You're wrestling with these very things. And notice the infinite divine wisdom of our Savior here. There are times when it's best to flee, to withdraw, to retreat. And there are other times to stand and fight. See, there's this idea... Sometimes that in order to be faithful, we always, always, always have to stand. We can never retreat, no surrender. In fact, if we don't stand and fight, then we're cowards or we're faithless or we're something worse. Was Jesus a coward? No. Was Jesus faithless? Absolutely not. Did he show divine wisdom? Perfectly. See, it's true, the Scriptures command, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. There's a command to to be ready. But that's not the same as saying there's a command that every single time a controversy erupts, that you make that the hill to die on. Jesus exhorted his disciples, in fact, to be wise as serpents serpents and harmless as doves. It's not always cowardice to retreat. It's not always faithless to withdraw. May the Lord give us wisdom to discern these things. So don't come away saying, well, David said just to give in, fold like a tent anytime there's a controversy. I didn't say that, did I? But following the perfect divine wisdom of our Savior, we said sometimes that's the better part of valor. We have to pick our fights. Wisdom requires us to exercise a a certain sobriety, whether it's in your workplace or in the civil sphere. May the Lord help us to be wise in those things. Now, the crowd was clearly a genuine threat, but our Lord overcame that. But it was not only a threat. The crowd actually represented something 
remarkable. Something the the prophets had foretold. And, And it's this. The prophets had foretold that all nations would come to the Son of God. In fact, I hadn't even picked up on it until our brother Stephen read this in our call to worship in Psalm 107. If you turn back over there real quick, in Psalm 107, verse 2 and 3. Psalm 107, verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Well, now I've given you a clue in the significance of the geographical references here in Mark chapter 3. Look at verse 7. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomea and from beyond the Jordan. It's on the west side of the Jordan, outside of the promised land proper, and from around Tyre and Sidon. See, this is unique to Mark, these geographical details. In fact, ordinarily, because Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, he's, he, has a, a, he uses an economy of words. And, and ordinarily, we see, for example, Matthew, and Matthew and Mark both testify about the same event. Ordinarily, Matthew gives more detail. But in this case, it's actually flipped. So here's Mark, sort of following after Peter, in the brevity and the economy of words, and yet Mark gives these geographical details, which, which ought to perk our ears up, and ought, ought to cause us to say, well, this, this is probably really important, because Mark doesn't give superfluous details for no reason, right? Again, why is this here? Why do these geographical refer- what do these geographical references teach us, and particularly, what do they teach us about Jesus as the Son of God? Now, if you were to go and plot each of these on a map, here's what you'll find. They represent north, south, east, and west. I think this is a not-so-subtle demonstration by Mark that Jesus is fulfilling what the prophets had foretold. We saw that in Psalm 107. But if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 43, I think this becomes even, even more clear. In Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 43 and verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created and for my glory, whom I formed and made. God testifies of his electing grace. 
For by his own volition, by his own will, he calls men and women and boys and girls to himself. And he says, I'm going to do that from all four corners of the world. And here we have, in Mark chapter 3, the briefest of foreshadowings. But we're only in chapter 3, though. The narrative is just beginning to unfold, and already we see evidence of the fact that this gospel will bear fruit all over the world. And I think John Mark, the author of Mark, being heavily influenced by both Paul and and Peter, he's drawing from these these prophetic utterances. He understands the prophetic significance of these things. Look down at verse 18, still in, in Isaiah 43. Look down at verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. See, God says, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing something new. And here is the Son of God drawing men and women from all over, from the north, from the south, from the east, and the west. In our confession of faith, chapter 20 is a chapter entitled, Of the Gospel. And there we confess, we testify that that the spread of the gospel is by God's sovereign decree. Every detail, every place it goes, every place the gospel takes root, and every place where it does not take root is by God's sovereign decree. And I'm just going to read a portion of that par- of, of paragraph 3. This is in our confession in chapter 20. The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in diverse times and by sundry parts, meaning progressively God is, is revealing himself in the gospel, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted, is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. Now, the, the, the 17th century language here is, is, a, is a bit stiff. In fact, this is probably the most difficult paragraph in our whole confession, not necessarily to understand, but if you try to outline it, some of you grammarians, if you were trying to outline this one, put it up on the big whiteboard, it would be a nightmare. You'd have to reconstruct the whole thing in order to outline it properly, because just the use of the phrases are different than what we're accustomed to. But, but, but the essence of it is, as to the nations or persons to whom the gospel is granted, who decides that? God. And here we have a picture of the Son of God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing men and women from the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west. Here in only the third chapter of his gospel, Mark is showing us that the works of Jesus, the works of the Son of God, are being made known. Now, are men coming to him for selfish reasons? Yes. Are they coming to him out of physical desperation? Yes. Are they denying their own spiritual needs? Yes. But don't miss. Don't miss what's here. It's a picture of God's electing grace to draw men and women to himself from everywhere. 
Some of these lands were, were solid Jewish lands. Others were pagan lands. Tyre and Sidon. You can, from, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, you can read about Tyre and Sidon. It was usually not good. They were pagan lands, and yet God is bringing people to himself, bringing people to his son in those places. God's electing grace is foreshadowed in the coming of Jesus as men and women come to him from all over the place. But I think there's something more to this text that that the Holy Spirit, uh, through Mark, wants us to know. From all of eternity, God has elected those whom he would draw to himself in, in time and space. But he's also appointed the very timing and the means of that happening. It is not only that God has decreed all things. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. It's not only that God has decreed all things, but the timing and the means of those coming to pass are also decreed by God. Now, where do I get that in Mark chapter 3? We see this in the last verse, in verse 11. Here, again, allow your, your sanctified imagination, your, your, your mind's eye to paint this picture. The crowds are pressing in upon him. People who are sick and dying, some are lame, some are blind, some are deaf. Some perhaps have bodily injuries of one kind or another. Some probably are lepers, and they're all coming. They're pressing in upon him, and he has to get into a boat and and come out. But some that are in that crowd are there because they are inhabited by evil spirits. And, And we see throughout the Gospels that these evil spirits can also create strong physical manifestations in people. Either they seem insane, like the demoniac who could not even be chained. He was was naked and out of his mind. Or others was a young man who was constantly thrown into a fire, attempted to drown, all these other things by means of an evil spirit. And those with evil spirits were coming to him. And when the evil spirits laid eyes on Jesus, look what, what they said. They fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. But does his response surprise you? Is it curious? He says, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Why not? Well, as you've already seen, greater popularity isn't always a good thing. And especially if that popularity comes through the mouths of demons. One legitimate reason, if you read through the commentaries, one legitimate reason or one explanation given to that question, why would Jesus tell the demons, shut your mouth? Do not speak about me. Do not make me known. One legitimate answer to that question is, Jesus doesn't want his name on the lips of demons. These are not the kinds of ambassadors. These are not the kinds of messengers that Jesus wants. And that's, that's a legitimate answer. It's a good answer. It's a right answer. But it's not enough. Why is it that Jesus told them to be quiet? Jesus here is demonstrating that he's going to conquer all enemies and all darkness at the appointed time and not a moment sooner. And by the appointed means, not any other way. So the gospel will not be carried forth on the lips of demons. 
The Lord Jesus, as Son of God, is sovereign over the means, but He's also sovereign over the timing. He strictly ordered them not to make Him known because it was not yet His hour. It was not yet time. Later on, when Jesus had poured out His Spirit upon His his apostles, they began to understand this much more clearly. And even the timing of the crucifixion of Christ was determined. It was preordained by God Himself. In fact, in the very first recorded sermon of the apostolic era, we see this in Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. When, when the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem, as, as Jesus had commanded them, and the Spirit of God is poured out upon them so, in such a way that they could hear and see the manifestation of the Spirit, like tongues of fire and sound of rushing waters. And the, the, the crowd is in awe as they hear men speak in foreign tongues that they could suddenly understand. Men were able to, to, not just gibberish, but they were speaking in known languages in such a way that people who did not hear and speak that language could understand it. And in the midst of all of this, the Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches. And at the end of the sermon that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, in verse 22, Peter closes with these words, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, what Peter says to these men with murderous intentions in their hearts, you, he's pointing the finger at them. You can see it in the sermon almost. In your mind's eye, you can see him pointing the finger at the Jews and saying, you are the ones who delivered him up to sinful men. It is is his blood that is on your hands, but all of this happened according to the predetermined, foreordained plan of God. Every detail, including the specific time. So when Jesus tells the demons to shut their mouths, it's because the hour had not yet come. We see here a picture of his, not only his divine wisdom and his electing grace, but his sovereign authority to accomplish the will of God at the perfect time and by the perfect means. And so from all of eternity, God has appointed both the timing and the means of the atoning work that Jesus came to accomplish. No crowd, no conspiracy of civil authorities and religious authorities, not even demonic powers would thwart the purposes of God. In fact, we love to sing a more modern hymn, In Christ Alone, in the words of Townend and Getty, from life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. No power of hell, no scheme of man. Now, we see both of those in this text, don't we? And yet, the Son of God is triumphant over these things. He doesn't succumb. He's not forced into someone else's timing. 
He's not forced into somebody else's means. Brothers and sisters, God does not change. His eternal decree does not change. We've been studying this in Sunday school. We looked at this just this, this morning in chapter 3, but we, we'll look ahead. We'll look ahead now in, into paragraph 6 of that same chapter. Listen to this. If you have a copy of the confession, you can turn there in chapter 3 in paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen at Adam, are redeemed in Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, are then justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. The Lord Jesus has sovereignly determined both the timing and the means of those whom he will draw to himself by his Spirit. We can be confident in this fact. We can rest in this fact. We, we can delight in this fact. We can give glory to God for this fact that he sovereignly rules and that he has determined the exact moment of not only the atoning work of Christ, but the very moment when your own heart first heard and believed the gospel. He has sovereignly determined all things, all people, all means, all timing, and we can rest in that. We can delight in that fact, but we can never be complacent in it. We should never be complacent in that, saints. We should never be complacent in the fact that God has decreed the means and the timing. I mean, how, how do the Scriptures res- command us to respond? When, when the gospel is preached, when that, when that a call is given, that general call is given, how does he command every man and woman and child to respond to that? Not with complacency. Not with sitting back, well, you know, God is sovereign. And since he's decided the moment, I can just not do anything. And I can just wait upon some sort of spiritual lightning bolt to come out of somewhere and arrest me from my stupor and respond in faith. But that's not the way the Scriptures view this. In fact, the Apostle Paul declares that today is the day of salvation. If we pick up in 2 Corinthians from the end of chapter 5, end of chapter 6, Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God 
in vain. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the, the, the free offer of the gospel. Don't receive that grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. And in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. So, brothers and sisters, we look here in Mark chapter 3 and we see this, this, this portrait of Jesus, the Son of God, who, who shows perfect, infinite divine wisdom, who shows his, his immutable electing grace to pour out on his people, who demonstrates his sovereign authority even as to the timing and the means of all things. But then do not come back and respond to that with complacency. To use Paul's words, do not receive that grace in vain. Your duty is to respond in belief. Your duty is to respond in humility. This is by God. He has spoken to me. And for some of you, for some of you, it might be that you've never believed the gospel. You, you, maybe you've played Christian. You know how you know the lingo. You know how to you know you know how to, to walk among us and talk among us. For some of you young people, you've grown up in a situation where you this has just been the air you've breathed. You've grown up in a church. You've grown up in a Christian home, but you've never actually believed this for yourself. You never actually submitted yourself to Christ. And, and perhaps because you've, you've heard of the doctrines of grace and you've heard about God's sovereignty and you've heard about his election and, and you think, well, I can be passive. I don't have to respond. I don't have to do anything. Jesus says, the work that I call you to do is to believe. To believe this gospel. Will you believe? That Christ died according to the Scriptures and that according to the Scriptures, God raised Him from the dead. Will you believe that all who believe have their sins washed away? Will you believe that He is the perfect, sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice for your sin? Will you believe that He alone will and can keep you and preserve you until the day of His return. To go, to go back to what I read in our, our confession just a moment ago, not only has God appointed the elect unto glory and, and the foreordained the means of that, but all those who are elected but fallen in Adam, that's all of us, if... God has appointed to life, they are effectually called, meaning it's not just a general call. It's not that you hear the gospel, but they actually understand it and believe it. By his spirit working in due season. That's a synonym for at the right time. And they are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. And that salvation is a comprehensive term. It's the whole package. So the burden placed upon you today is will you believe this? Is today. Today, will you submit yourself to Christ? Submit yourself to His gospel. And for those of you who are already in Christ, 
the message falls upon our ears as well. God has appointed both the timing and the means. It is the voice of Christ that we are hearing today, not the voice of a man. Will we respond to his word? Will we recognize his and behold our Savior according to his wisdom, according to his electing grace, according to his sovereign might? Will we rest in that, not becoming complacent in it, but resting in that, trusting him, seeking after him, seeking after the means that he has appointed for us to grow in grace? God says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is that favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to behold our Savior. We want to see Jesus. Father, will we, will we see in him, help us to see a picture of your perfect divine wisdom. Help us to see in your own son a perfect image of your electing grace. Help us to see in him your perfectly ordained victory at just the right time, and by just the right means. Father, will you build us up together in a growing trust and delight in our Savior, in a growing devotion to and love of one another. Will you grant to us the blessing of unity, of common devotion, of common commitment to the kingdom of our Savior. It's in his name that we pray.